Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led landscaping. I, I used to say permaculture. And uh, in the yard, there's hazelnuts, an American chestnut tree, numerous oaks. I have a dog that actually likes to eat oak acorns. It's so sweet to see me eat the, all those acorns from the um, oak tree. Uh, I tried once. It, it didn't really work all that well. But uh, also there's blueberries and goji berries and honeybush berries and raspberries and a peach tree and apple trees and cherry trees and mulberry trees, uh, service berries, choke cherries, and of course, several box gardens. And, you know, I've been really fortunate because I've been in the same space for um, nearly 30 years. So every year we add a little bed and I kind of call this permanent landscape. And I was using the phrase um, permaculture as to kind of name it or give it a shortcut. But now I'm wanting to move towards using or seeing it more as nature-led landscaping. And one of the reasons I see it as nature-led landscaping is because um, I've really wanted milkweed. We know what's happening with the Maranarks. And so it took years, and now the milkweed is just flowing all over the place. And I love it. And and it's, it, it, it's it, you know, we almost have this story in American agriculture of scarcity. And the story of life is abundance, and and so um, and and just living in this abundance. And when the dog's happy eating acorns, I mean, <laughs> there's it's 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 uh, you know it, there's something about nature-led landscaping and belonging to reality. So Food Freedom Radio is all about envisioning a food system that's respectful of water, soil, planet, and people. We work towards a historic transformation. How do we move from food production being a source of economic, social, and ecological destruction? How do we move towards a food system which is a source of clean water, healthy soil, and a toxic-free environment? Um, What's the connection between agriculture and climate change? What policies will result in climate stability? And are some of the apologies which say they are about climate change, or are they are some of them greenwashed? So are we saying some things are good for the environment that are actually bad? On today's show, um, we are pleased to have Michael Hopp uh, with um, the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and your work, your organization. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is Michael Happ. I work at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Um, IATP has been around since the the farm crisis of the 1980s. And we really uh, got started to try and combat some of the, the systems that led to the farm crisis, right? All these financial pressures, all this corporate consolidation uh, in agriculture that was putting putting a lot of um, small and mid-sized family farmers out to pasture, right? How can we combat that? How can we make sure that there are economic lifelines for farmers? And over the years, uh, we kind of um, we've kind of grown and changed, and and we we act these days as kind of a think tank, right? We focus on policy. We look at you know not only in the US, but also, you know, at the very local level and the international level, right? How are the, the, the cards stacked against um, family farms, folks who are trying to farm with climate in mind? Um, and this is, you know, very personal for me because I grew up on a, on a family farm in North Central Illinois. You kind of, you know, farmers see climate change firsthand, right? They're kind of the front lines in a lot of ways, um, seeing, how, um, seeing how yields change, seeing how, soil can degrade, seeing how water can degrade. Um, and farmers in a lot of cases are trying to trying to do the right thing and, and are facing so many so many hurdles. Um, yeah, whether it's in the market or in policy that affects the market. 
Right, and there are a lot of farmers that are having a hard time that they're using uh, regenerative or soil-friendly um, practices, but they're still selling conventional because the markets aren't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of people who want to transition to organic who you know are having a hard time with that that kind of that window of time before you can be certified organic, uh, you have to sell conventionally. Um, you know, there's there's a yield lag sometimes when when people are con- um, converting over to organic or more regenerative systems, um, and I think we need to shape policy in a way um, that rewards people who are who are doing the right thing, who are farming with climate in mind, um, and who are who are looking at what risk actually is. Um, yeah. Okay, so so let's let's just talk in general for a while about how um, agriculture contributes to uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does how does agriculture contribute? Yeah, so looking at three kind of major greenhouse gases, talking about carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. Um, agriculture contributes in a lot of ways, uh, in all in all three ways. Um, so looking at carbon, um, right? Soil can be a, a great carbon sink. Um, but the more we till, uh, the, the less life that is in the soil, the more carbon dioxide that ends up in the atmosphere. So that's one way. So um, I want to way... slow down because even I was, um, uh, before, um, before maybe I'll use the word colonization, um, but the soils were so deep in our area. I mean, they were fo- mm-hmm. foot deep and then that plowing has just released a lot of the carbon. So that's one of the reasons, one of the ways that, um, our industrialized practices have, um, have uh, created climate instability. Yeah, and and there's someone who's who's very smart and whose opinion I trust very much, uh, who put it in a really interesting way. It's like healthy soils, right? It, there shouldn't be a clear contrast from where the plant life ends and the soil begins, right? It, it kind of should be a very gradual thing that should be filled with microbes and and life and you know there should be lots of worms crawling around down there and and you know chewing up stuff and contributing what they can um to the nutrients of the soil and and the general health of it um so that's that's yeah that's a major um source of carbon and the further away we get from those natural systems uh, the more carbon that ends up in the atmosphere um and another way and and this has um, gotten some headlines in recent years is is methane right a lot of methane is emitted um, through animal agriculture, right? So you have the, the infamous, right, the, the cow burps, so to speak, the enteric fermentation um, from livestock such as cattle and sheep, where this, these are just the natural um, processes in their body, right? It takes a lot to chew and digest um, certain foods. Um, you know, cows have four stomachs. There's a lot of gas that is emitted. Um, there's also a lot of methane emitted from manure right where we store manure um you know there's 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 a way of handling manure that can be very regenerative right applying it right to the soil um ideally in a pasture-based system right that can that can lead to more plant growth and kind of uh, offset that but in in today's industrial animal agriculture system um we have these great big manure lagoons that are huge sources of methane and going Uh, and then I'm sorry, going back to that nature-led wisdom when the buffalo were on the, the land for thousands of years, and that, that's what made that really deep, healthy soil. Um, exactly. And so that's that, that, that nature-led wisdom. And we have um, – our, our, our food systems have sort of operated out of a different type of um, 
um, I don't know what I want to phrase it as. I don't want to phrase it as a different story, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then the third um, third major greenhouse gas uh, that I want to highlight is nitrous oxide. Um, and a lot of that is emitted through uh, things like synthetic fertilizers, right? The production of um, hydrogen, the, the whole production system behind uh, fertilizers can lead to a lot of nitrous oxide being um, being emitted. So for those reasons alone, not, not to mention the economic reasons, um, we're trying to push, right, to help help farmers who are trying different things, right? Folks who, who might be engaging in what we call agroecology, right? Farmer-led, nature-based farming systems, right? How can, we, how can we farm with risk in mind, try to reduce input costs, try to, try to help folks who want to farm without those synthetic fertilizers and herbicides and all these other things, right? How can we help them and not um, market against them? In, in many ways. So how do we do that? I mean, <clears throat> you did, so that's a very complicated question, but, uh, <laughs> and um, so how, how do we, how do we reward um, uh, farmers who honor soil and water in, in our food systems? Yeah. So there are a lot of ways. One, uh, one thing that I focus on in my work is uh, U.S. federal farm bill policy, uh, specifically focusing in on USDA conservation programs. Uh, and there are these two programs that I look at, uh, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, or EQIP, and the Conservation Stewardship Program, or CSP. And these programs, um, the idea behind them is great, right? Farmers can look out in their field and they see, wow, there's this, there's this area where there's a lot of soil erosion, right? Water runs through this, uh, through this gully, kind of you know, taking soil away. I really want to plant a grassed waterway, and that's where um, these programs can come in, right? You can apply for a grant through EQIP and say, I want to plant a grassed waterway and keep the soil in place. Uh, and then the U.S. Department of Agriculture comes in and says, all right, that's a great idea. We'll help you pay for that. Um, and then as farmers put more and more conservation on the land, um, they can graduate up to the conservation stewardship program and plant things like, uh, you know, plant things like uh, stream buffers and pollinator habitat and, and try and find ways to include more crop rotations and uh, reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizers that you need to put in. Um, so that's a major, uh, I think these programs are a great starting point uh, for farmers who want to do the right thing, who might need some financial help uh, to do it. Uh, they're, they're not perfect systems by any means uh, with the Environmental Quality Incentives Program in particular, uh, there are some practices in there that are kind of more on the industrial side um, that aren't regenerative, that aren't agroecological in any way, um, that kind of take the program away from its intent. So um, so you're talking about the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, EQIP, and in one of your reports you said since 2002, 50% of EQIP funding has been required to support livestock operations, including industrial-sized factory farming. So is, an, is, is supporting factory farming a good solution to our climate crisis? In my opinion, no. So looking at... Um, so. As you mentioned, IATP just came out um, with some interesting new uh, infographics and and images and graphs and things like that, um, showing the scope of um, of this issue, 
where programs meant for conservation for folks who are wanting to do the right thing are being steered in the wrong direction and and paying for um, basically environmental cleanup of factory farms. Um, and as you mentioned, since 2002, um, so EQIP was created in 1996. And at that time, factory farms were not eligible for these payments. It was meant for you know farmers who want to do real conservation on the ground. Um, and then the next farm bill came around and it was a split Congress. Uh, it was really tight control. Um, folks wanted more funding for conservation programs and a, a deal was struck. Uh, so it's like, all right, we'll give you more funding for conservation if you require that half of the money goes to livestock. Now, if that money was just going to pasture-based systems, helping folks put on in, in you know, rotational grazing, for example, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. Uh, but the problem is a lot of that funding is going towards things like manure lagoons, going towards things like uh, roof runoff management, right? You've got these giant um, confinements, really big roofs, and the water coming off of there has a lot of eroding <laughs> capability once it falls off of there. So it's essentially helping pay for gutters of these giant buildings and lots of concrete and and. Um, and the, yeah. and the thing is, so, so right? we're gonna we're gonna take a break. Um, we're okay. talking with IETP um, Michael Happ, and um, are, is are we using our tax dollars to pay for pollution? Uh, are we paying for that out of um, money that could be used to help um, create a, a more stable um, environment? Um, how do we move to agriculture? Make agriculture a nature led or a nature honoring and respecting a food system, which results in healthier people and a more stable climate and, and fun. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led landscaping. And uh, with me uh, is Michael Hopp. He's with um, IATP, the Institute of Ag and Trade Policy. We're talking about um, climate change and how agriculture contributes to climate change. And of course, agriculture has been deeply impacted by climate change. So um, you want to talk about that a little bit, Michael? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, farmers are kind of on the front lines of climate change. They're seeing the effects right away. Their livelihoods are kind of dependent on it, right? Uh, here in Minnesota, we've had three or four straight years of summertime droughts, uh, and that's that's had a huge impact on farmers, uh, negative, negative impacts, right? We've seen lots of folks who've had to downsize their herds or sell them entirely because, you know, there's not enough rain to, to feed the, the pastures, right? Uh, and that's that's changing the landscape, right? When you when you aren't able to support a pasture, sometimes that land is converted over to to things like corn and soybeans, um, and 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 we see people, you know, it, it's really hard economically on folks. And emotionally, um, I mean, this is a just a garden to water it in this drought, and and in other areas with this record heat waves. Um, and the dangers, um, and, and a lot of animals have died too with the record heat waves. Yeah, yeah, I was, I think it was in Kansas uh, last year, right? You have this 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 huge herd of cattle that dies in the heat wave, and we're just going to see more and more of that. Um, and it's, it is really sad. It's an emotional thing, right? I I grew up on a farm. I know how much emotions are tied into it, and and work and 
and history. Um, and I think it, it's too bad. And, and I think there are lots of side effects of climate change that, that also affect farmers, right? From water quantity and quality and, and just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's rough. And then, and then the rain that does come, right, is oftentimes more in torrents. Um, and that's not helpful either, right? We're seeing a lot of rain right now during harvest time. That's not when we need the rain. We needed a long time ago to help nourish the nourish the crops. Um, and then when when the rain comes down in those torrents, you see a lot more soil erosion. Um, so so some people talk about just conservation. They're like, oh, there's nothing. It has nothing to do with climate change. We're just talking about soil health and and erosion. But it is very much linked to climate, and and climate is is making a lot of these issues worse. For sure. Right. Okay. So, um, so in the first segment, we talked about um, the EQIP program, uh, the Environmental Quality Incentive Program. And so, one way that the um, U.S. Department of Agriculture attempts to address the harms caused by industrial agriculture is through these conservation programs. Um, and they're intended to help um, with things like soil health, water quality, air quality, wildlife habitat, and greenhouse gas emissions. How effective are those programs? Does everyone who wants to sign up get in, or is there and 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 how is the money distributed in those programs? Is it distributed with those intentions in mind? Yeah, so I, I would say that that um, these programs were created with with good intentions, and there are a lot of really good conservation projects that have been funded, uh, and they're really popular with farmers. That's the other thing. Um, one thing that my research has pointed out is that the demand for financial help for conservation on farm is through the roof and is not being met, right? Uh, in, in 2022, uh, in Minnesota, only 8% of farmers who applied to the conservation stewardship program um, were awarded contracts. Only 8%? Um, so 8%. That, that leaves Minnesota 51st out of 52 states and territories that year um, for, um, for connecting farmers with, with these contracts. So that's, uh, and put it in, and give you some more numbers, uh, a little over 3,000 farmers um, or 3,000 applicants went in and applied for CSP and only 241 were approved. So just think about, these are all people who are waiting in line to put conservation on their land. Think of all the acres, think of all the pollinator habitat, the water quality, all these things uh, that we just didn't have the money to fund last year. Um, so. One really good thing that we're looking for, um, so you may remember last year, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed by Congress and signed by President Biden. And that included um, about $20 billion uh, for some of these conservation programs. So we're waiting, uh, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll see you know, how did that money help, um, help with this closed out crisis uh, that farmers are facing? Um, how many more acres, how many more farmers are we able to connect these programs, because um, again, they're really popular and uh, and have have led to a lot of really good conservation on the ground. And they have, but um, also you had you had a chart that you put out, and you want to try to describe that chart. I know we're on radio and audio, but try to try to do an audio version of of the chart that uh, that caught my eye on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. So so um, what Laura is referring to is uh, IATP just put out these infographics uh, talking about farmers unmet demand for conservation. Um, so going back to the, the EQIP program, um, 
nationwide, a little over a quarter of those who applied to that program uh, were accepted, right? So that's that's leaving almost 75% of farmers who applied to the program left out. Um, and at the same time, a lot of EQIP is going toward really expensive industrial practices for factory farms. Again, those manure lagoons, uh, those waste storage facilities. Um, I don't know if you know this, but EQIP has paid for animal mortality facilities. So as we see more extreme weather, as we see more extreme droughts, um, we're seeing more animal mortality, more animals dying in these large concentrated. So what is an um, animal mortality facility? So it can look different um, for different operations, but just imagine a concrete bunker where you can you know, store the carcasses of, of deceased animals. Uh, to prevent, you know, whatever is in their body from getting into local water. Uh, so these kind of animals are not even consumed by humans. They're they're just right, right. So you have to, you know, either compost the bodies or or store them. And you know, just the the reason Equip pays for it is theoretically to to keep um, to keep water from being contaminated. But again, these are a scale of farms that I think a lot of listeners, you know, you think of farms, you think of a, a small idyllic family farm, uh, and these are, you know, at a scale just kind of unfathomable until you actually see it. Um, so anyway, looking at the chart, <laughs> to get back to your question, yeah. um, a little over 15% of EQIP money is going toward these um, 11 industrial practices that we outline. And again, it's it's not comprehensive. It's just 11 practices that we wanted to highlight. So it's, again, things like animal mortality facilities, um, waste impoundments, roof runoff management, um, and a, a practice that is growing in popularity, or at least, you know, there are more and more uh, starting to get funded are anaerobic digesters, anaerobic methane digesters, um, which sound good on their face, right? There are these um, structures that are meant to um, reduce methane from things like manure lagoons. Um, but at the same time, it, we're, we're talking about a scale that's just unfathomable. The, these, the average amount of money going toward a digester um, is about $280,000. Um, and last year, only seven digesters in California um, were funded, and and that was that was about equal to about six and a half percent of the entire allocation uh, to the state of Massachusetts. So that's kind of the scale of money we're talking about. Um, and at IHP, we're talking about you know how can we reduce the amount of money going toward these industrial practices and shift it more toward cost-effective conservation measures, right? Cover crops cost a lot less than concrete is the thing that we like to say. And the average cover crop contract, again, planting crops to keep the soil covered uh, to reduce soil erosion. It's kind of a gateway conservation practice for a lot of folks, and it's it's common sense, right? The average contract for cover crops is about $8,300. The average contract for a digester is $280,000. So okay. you just compare so, those. Two. So we're going to take a break. So either we yeah. could be spending $8,000 to help a medium-sized farmer with the cover crop, or we could spend several hundred thousand dollars to help a big factory farm. I wonder where our money should go to help 
um, result in a stable climate. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're talking about factory farming, climate change, and how dollars meant to help are going towards factory farming. And, and how, do we, how, do we make that, um, how do we make that shift? So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking with Michael Happ with um, IATP, the Institute of Egg and Trade Policy. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about factory farming and climate change. And joining us is Michael Happ with the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy. Okay, so um, again, explain the connections between factory farming and, 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 and climate change. Yeah, so in Minnesota, um, looking at greenhouse gas emissions, um, there are three really big contributors um, – to emissions in Minnesota. We've got electricity, we've got transportation, and we've got agriculture. And the thing about transportation and electricity is the emissions have been going down. They've been going in the right direction um, since for the past 15, 20 years or so. Agriculture, however, has been kind of remaining steady, right? The emissions haven't been going down much. Um, And a lot of that is because of things like factory farms, where there's a whole lot of methane being emitted and also things uh, like synthetic fertilizer, where there's a lot of nitrous oxide being emitted, in addition to right, carbon that might be released from, from poor um, soil management in, in crop agriculture. Um, so I think it's really important that we look at how we farm and we, we try to encourage people to farm with climate in mind. And again, there are a lot of farmers who want to farm with climate in mind, but feel like they can't for economic reasons, right? They're they're kind of put into a box, um, either by policy, by the folks that they buy seeds from, you know, things like that. Um, right now, our crop insurance program rewards the wrong things. Um, so if you if you're a farmer and you see these droughts coming in. You're like, oh, I, I grow corn and soybeans. Maybe I should plant some wheat um, as kind of my own crop insurance, right? Wheat does better in drier conditions. It'll give me potentially a, a new source of income, and it can kind of buffer in case it's a bad year for, for corn or soybeans. However, if you're, if you're planting wheat for the first time, you're not going to be eligible for crop insurance, right? Because because they look at, okay, have you grown a crop before? Are you using the recommended amount of um, fertilizer, uh, herbicides, pesticides, things like that? Um, and if you're not, they see that as a risk. And we're trying to flip the script here and say, if you're not farming with climate in mind, you're the risky one, right? Right? Climate is only bringing more risk and more financial uncertainty. And farmers have to deal with a heck of a lot of uncertainty, right? Between the weather, between markets, right? They're, they're supposed to be their own stockbrokers, their own carpenters, their own veterinarians, all these other things. And, and they're used to shocks. And, and climates, climate shock is just another one of those things um, making it hard for farmers. Um, and any, any idea on um, with, uh, uh, how is the uh, crop insurance program fearing? Um, is the climate disruptions affecting our crop insurance program? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
we're seeing higher and higher payouts as as people uh, as people have been prevented from even planting some years, right? Folks might remember in 2019 there were these huge uh, torrential downpours uh, in the spring, uh, particularly like in southwest Minnesota, eastern South Dakota, um, and a lot of folks just couldn't get in the field. One thing, however, to note about that year is that a lot of folks who planted cover crops were able to get into the field, right? The roots absorbed a lot of the water, the soil was more permeable, whereas the folks who left their fields barren, right, that soil, there was just a hard crust on top that the water couldn't get through and it, and it just pooled and there, there were these huge lakes that I'm sure the geese liked, but the farmers didn't. Um, so, and, and, and so one, yeah, of, the, one of the other connections between factory farming and climate change is the monocultures. So nearly 50% of the corn and 70% of the soy grown in the United States. And when you drive anywhere, you'll just see those ubiquitous corn and soy fields. But that's produced to feed animals, which are raised in factory farms. And, uh, and so that type of farming... Um, doesn't uh, it, it, that when it comes to the carbon cycle, how does that type of a farming impact our uh, weather systems? Yeah, I, I'd say they're not resilient in the face of climate, right? I think one thing that we're we're trying to help farmers do, and a lot of farmers really want to do this, they want to diversify their operation, right? They want to bring back bring back the crop rotations where instead of putting in um, all these chemicals, we could do a crop rotation where, hey, this crop brings nitrogen back to the soil. This crop here, right? Th these are things that that folks have known for thousands of years, right? And and you know, the more we can get back to these natural systems where the plants that we have um, provide the nutrients that we need, um, the better. And I think, um, yeah, one of those things is 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 we need to help folks diversify their operations. We need to make sure that um, people feel supported uh, if they want to try growing different things. Um, and again, it doesn't it doesn't take that much land um, to feed a lot of people, right? A lot of the things that we, we eat, spinach, the fruits and vegetables, um, nut trees, you can feed a lot of people with hazelnuts. Um, and I think, you know, growing that food together and, and having the benefits uh, together, I think that can be amazing. And, and uh, yeah, where we can, we should incentivize that. Yeah, I think it can be totally amazing as well. Um, and then, I mean, animals on factory farms are suffering. I mean, it's just, uh, and, and yet it, 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 it's so many of our calories come from the system. Um, and, 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 and I don't, it is so, um, ubiquitous. I know one thing I saw on your website that I didn't see before was just encouraging people to do a factory farm detox. It was following some other links, you know, just do a week without any factory farming, um, and, and, and see, um, and see what you can eat. But, um, but it is, I mean, you know, there's, there's so much, can, can we eat without factory farms? I mean, it's it's hard, right? I think it's if you go into your supermarket, it's it's really hard to avoid it. Um, I think where people can, if you have the money, you know, go to your local farmers market, know your farmers, you know, maybe enroll in a CSA or grow your own food where you know where it's coming from, and uh, and you can help kind of diversify the market uh, and provide some alternatives um, and and bring less of a stigma to it, right? Like I think. 
I think with a lot of factory farmed things, the prices are artificially low, right? You see a cheap broiler chicken, right? A rotisserie chicken in your grocery store and it's $6. The life of a chicken is not worth $6. And, and where are those cost savings coming from? They're coming oftentimes at the expense of the environment, at the expense of uh, farm workers, the expense of, of folks in the slaughterhouses, in the expense of the animals themselves. So I think I, I think a lot of the prices that we have are artificially low. Um, and on top of that, right, in a system where farmers are paid what their products are worth, that has a trickle up effect in the economy, right? You have more farmers on the land doing the right thing, raising animals with their welfare in mind and crops with people's welfare in mind. Um, and they can have more wealth to, to buy locally and, and, and get their supplies locally. And that, that helps build rural economies, which is something I care about, right? Coming from a rural area. Um, and cities need rural areas too, right? It, it needs to be a dynamic economy where people are sharing, people are traveling between them and, and markets can be local. And, and just this, this really interesting ecosystem of, of, of money right, of support of, of people caring for each other. I think that's eroded a lot um, in the past few decades as factory farming has expanded. Yeah, and and how do we feel some, um, how, how do we exercise our agency over the system? Because it does feel like um, like we don't have any agency, right? I mean, this is, I, you know, given that, the, I mean, a lot of people when they're going to the store right now, they're in price shock and you, you only have, you know, $20 left, mm-hmm. you know, what do you do? And and I know, um, I mean, some people, um, someone I know is just great at like using cornmeal as something that's really affordable. You can do some great things with cornmeal. You can do some great things with barley and nuts and legumes. And, and Seward Co-op has some fantastic classes on how, how to eat at both healthy and affordable. But the other thing with the, um, the, the fact that 50% of corn and 70% of the soy grown in the United States is for factory farms, basically, um, that also has an impact on human health. So we are spending more money on health care because healthy people need food from healthy soil. And that wasn't really understood, but it's it's. I think it's becoming an, a, an emerging understanding that the quality of the soil um, and the quality of the food, where, where our food comes from, is essential to our health. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it really well. <laughs> I don't know that I have much more to add on that. So, but the other way that we can help uh, shift the system is through policy changes. And so I know you have a new graph on EQIP <laughs> and how much money is in those conservation programs are actually going to the factory farms for manure alerts. When only you said something like only eight percent of the farmers in Minnesota who applied for the program got funding, so a lot of people, a lot of farmers who are applying for things like cover crops did not get funding, but companies that wanted hundreds of thousands of dollars for other things got funding. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's there's not enough money out there, and a lot of the money that that is there is going to the wrong thing. It's a it's a two pronged thing. Um, and one other thing that I want to highlight, so there are a lot of really good people um, working for good reasons at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I respect them so much. Um, folks in your local USDA offices, um, they're often there. They want to help farmers. They're really overworked right now. 
right? There's a staffing shortage at these local county offices. People are not paid what they're worth. Uh, and there's a lot of turnover right now. Um, so one thing that we're advocating for is more resources for those technical experts at the local offices who can be there for a while and build trust with local farmers and say, hey, I'm here to work for you. You want to plant these cover crops. You want to put in this pollinator habitat. You want to you know, put in some sort of crop rotation. I'm here to help you. Um, and, and making sure that those people with expertise, they stay in, in place and, and feel supported, right? Because um, a lot of these programs, they're paperwork intensive, right? You can, you can have a hundred plus application, a hundred plus page application um, to apply for these programs. And that's, that's not, that's a huge barrier for a lot of farmers. But it's also a waste. I mean, I feel that on so many of those programs you apply or whatever it is, grants, you do all that work to apply. And it's just, it's just seemed like wasted effort. I, I wish there was a simpler way of, of doing these things. And, oh, um, yeah. but I think, I think there are a lot of really hard work in USDA um, employees and a lot of great intentions and those great intentions, while it, it can season slow, they matter, and I think they do create some changes. We're going we're gonna to take a break. We're talking about uh, factory farming, climate change, and agricultural, agricultural systems. With us is Michael Happ with um, IATP, the Institute of Ag and Trade Policy. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit on some other issues like Mexico and GMO corn and um, excessive speculation. Maybe food could be about love and feeding people in healthy soils. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and joining me uh, is Michael Happ from IATP. Um, and we've been talking about climate change and factory farming and agriculture and how they're all connected. Um, and I want to talk just a little bit about now Mexico and GMO corn. And um, do you want to fill us in on what's been happening um, in Mexico and GMO corn? Yeah, so I'll just preface this by saying I'm not an expert on this, I'll point people um, to our website, uh, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, iatp.org. Um, and anything written by uh, my colleague Timothy Wise uh, or Karen Hansen Kuhn, they're the experts on this. So reading anything um, that they've written about um, Mexico and GMO, um, I, would, I would point people there. Um, but the short answer is uh, there's a trade dispute right now. Mexico is is trying to assert its sovereignty um, right over corn that that folks have been cultivating for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Uh, and it's a very important crop uh, for folks down there. There are so many different varieties of corn, and it's an important part of people's diets. Um, and they're trying to limit um, the import of uh, of U.S. corn, especially stuff that's uh, that's GMO corn. Um, and we're finding, you know, a lot of these uh, GMO varieties of corn are crowding out some of the native varieties that have been here for so long, uh, and, and it's threatening people's food sovereignty. Um, and and just the long and short of it is we think Mexico has the right um, to ban the import of, of GMO corn, uh, and, and unfortunately the, the United States is taking the opposite approach. And, and I think it's, it's, it's wrongheaded because it's focusing on, on corporate profits rather than people's food sovereignty, people's diets, people's health. And, and it's, it's viewing food 
as a commodity rather than uh, nourishment, rather than a part of culture. Um, and I well, think, yeah. And this one just makes me so mad because it's like you give the customer what they want. Um, people in Mexico don't want GMO corn. Good for them. They want their self-sufficiency. There's a phrase, no corn, no country. And I really honor that. And then to know that our government is saying, no, you must buy our GMO corn or else. I mean, it's like, ooh, yuck. I don't like our government doing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you have also the, the issue of, of grain dumping, right, where where the U.S. exports um, – it's grains at at a at a price uh, that you know local varieties just can't compete with, right? You're using cheap food as as kind of a, a lever, um, and I think I think that's a wrongheaded approach. And I think um, right, we need to support um, Mexican farmers, and we need to support folks that that want to eat the diet they want to eat, uh, and and also just want to raise raise the point of of folks who do have economy in mind, right? U.S. farmers have an opportunity, right? If they want to grow non-GMO corn, right, there's still going to be demand for that, and there's still going to be, you know, folks, uh, folks south of the border who want to purchase non-GMO corn from um, U.S. farmers. Um, but I think I think there's a there's a really big imperative to, you know. Well, and treat, to, treat people as equals, essentially. And, and right, not, exactly. Not and um, so World Food Day was October 16th, so this last week, 2023. And it's fun to see the words, words like water is life honored in that, and this idea of food sovereignty and trying to get out away from the um, excessive um, speculation when it comes to the food. You know, again, getting getting into the, you know, what's the intention of the food system to have a couple billionaires running around and they get to wear their billionaire's hat? Or is it about healthy food, healthy soil, sustainable living, children, and and enjoy, and and this water is life, and just a, a living, vibrant economics, and how we move forward as um, on the entire planet um, with that idea in mind. And we are down to our last forty seconds. So again, give a shout out for your uh, website and where people can learn more because there's lots of ways to nerd out on your information. Yeah, I just direct people to iatp.org, the Institute for Ag and Trade Policy. Um, we have a lot of resources on there about factory farming, about um, food sovereignty, uh, water rights, things like that. So um, go to iatp.org if you want to learn more. Well, thank you so much, Michael Hopp, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Um, have an awesome weekend, and um, let's let's change the food system so it's healthy, vibrant, and sustainable.